Hello and welcome to the Oculus Podcast on June 12, 2017. I'm very excited today because today, Dr. Sharon Negretta Sutton, FAIA, joins me to discuss her fifth book, When Ivory Towers Were Black, a story about race in America's cities and universities, recently published in February by Fordham University Press. A little more than 50 years ago, an insurrection at Columbia University opened a passage into the School of Architecture for African-American and Hispanic students. Active recruitment based on a vision to diversify the fields of architecture and planning occurred at Columbia University and other universities from 1967 until 1976. When Ivory Towers Were Black investigates this era, which was sparked by the civil rights movement through the shared experiences of a group of the school's minority alumni, a highly successful group that continues to thrive as practitioners, academics, and mentors to subsequent generations of aspiring design professionals. Dr. Sutton was the first African-American woman in the United States to be promoted to full professor of architecture. She holds five academic degrees in music, architecture, philosophy, and psychology, and has studied graphic art in studios internationally. Dr. Sutton's work has been recognized by numerous honors and awards, most notably as an inductee in the Michigan Women's Hall of Fame and as a recent recipient of the AIA New York and AIA Seattle Medal of Honor. She is currently a professor emeritus of architecture, urban design, and social work at the University of Washington and professor at large in New York City. Welcome to the Oculus Podcast, Dr. Sutton. Thank you for having me. The first chapters vividly portray a complex maze of parallel events that created the perfect incubator for change. Can you summarize the events that set the stage for Columbia students to take the extraordinary step of closing down the university? The 60s were a time of tumultuous activity that uh, really got started at the end of World War II, was a kind of watershed in American society. For one thing, um, the African-American soldiers who had gone overseas to fight Nazism and fascism came back to find themselves in a situation of discrimination. And they began to resist that, and as they did, the white supremacist ratcheted up their violence against um, the veterans, which brought attention to the whole race problem in America. The war also made apparent the need for a good educational system. And Truman had a um, report of our, an evaluation of our system, which was very damning in terms of educational equity. And uh, that report uh, sort of instigated the eventual Supreme Court ruling that ended the policy of separate and equal, which was anything but equal. Um, Schools had been, after Reconstruction, the Supreme Court had said, that you could have schools that were separate but equal for black and white children and black and white university students, college students. And this, in 1954, that was ended. So that began a whole struggle to realize that ruling that resulted in many protests and sit-ins and all sorts of things. So there, there was a lot of protesting that was going on, and it was all being televised, where you could see every night on your TV screen something really horrific happening, like dogs attacking 
young children and old people at the direction of police. So there was violence in the air. At the same time, uh, the cities were in um, were on fire because, for several reasons, uh, there was um, suburbanization that was fueled by the construction of the highways that allowed white people with financing from the government to move out of the cities, taking their resources with them. And in the meantime, the construction of the highways destroyed at least 1,600 viable African-American neighborhoods. So that created a situation of huge unrest in the African-American community. And there were hundreds of race riots all over the country in cities, in small towns, in, sub, in suburban areas. Um, so that was happening. The, the urban crisis was happening. Then more prescient was the Vietnam War which there was a draft which was drafting college-age kids. And so the, the students were very implicated in the 60s turmoil. And at the same time all this was going on was a counterculture of you know people like Bob Dylan encouraging young people to resist authority because it was a very authoritarian society at the time in which adults were in charge. Uh, so all that was, was happening. And on the Columbia campus, these things all had a, a reality with the urban renewal being not about construction of highways, in, but about Columbia University's expansion into the Harlem community. And so that was a very big part of the thing that students were objecting to, the relationship of the university to the Harlem community, the Vietnam War, the fact that students were being um, recruited on campus. Um, and in particular, they were very outraged by the construction of um, the Morningside a gym in Morningside Park, uh, the, which was something that really interested the black students who were part of the university revolt, but the, also the architecture students. So all of those things were were happening um, that jump started this occupation of the university buildings and. You know, the, the architecture students didn't so much consciously go into it, but kind of came in through the back door of they were in the building, you know, doing the traditional charrette to get a project done. And the dean told them to leave because things were going on on campus and they refused to leave. And that's how they got involved in the insurrection. Do you find that this kind of resistance to authority can happen now? Well, it is happening. Um, the you know there was the Wall Street um, thing that went on a couple of years ago that was really globally, uh, you know, in cities all over the world uh, that didn't really. Um, 
it's very hard to organize a focus resistance because there's so many issues. If you think about the, the women's march that happened right after the election, you know, people were protesting really about everything. And so how you get cohesion out of that in order to bring about change, I think is something that we'll have to see. But it's a much more uh, diverse society now. The greater difficulty is that in recent years, the police have been armed with military equipment for putting, you know, they're not just using billy billy clubs. So they have a, a much more military force for putting down any sort of insurrection. So on the one hand, you have a more diverse population that you're trying to organize. And on the other hand, you have that population facing a greater military force. So we'll have to keep our fingers crossed. You use the word insurgency or insurrection throughout the book. What did those words mean? in 1968 as opposed to the term resistance we most often hear in 2017? Well, it's pretty close. Um, I think the difference is, is subtle. Insurrection means resistance to authority. And that was very much what the 60s uh, protests were about. The authority to segregate people, uh, the, the authority to prevent people from voting, um, the authority of older people over younger people, the authority to draft people for a war that you felt was unjust. And if you think about the, the march uh, to democracy, that there's this ongoing march, Obama talked about this in his farewell speech about that there's not a straight that there there is a thrust towards an ever more perfect democracy but it's not a straight shot and it's a struggle to get there so where we were in the 60s is that um, there had been since uh, uh, reconstruction a long march towards civil rights, towards equity. And there was, but the lack of equity was the status quo, and this was the resistance to that. The difference now is that we've had this incredible period of achieving greater freedoms for many different people. And um, as symbolized by the two elections of Barack Obama and all of the legislation he was able to pass. And there's a, a white lash against that that resulted in a person who's undoing all the progress. And so the resistance is to the undoing of the good that was happening. So it's a very subtle kind of shift in but but basically it's the same thing it's resistance to what's going on now going back to the 1960s right after the insurrection faculty and students undertook an experiment at the school of architecture that resulted in unprecedented innovation and academic excellence including student-centered 
learning and outreach in the Cardiff community. Can you describe how the experiment came into being? Okay, well, I have to tell you a little bit about the strike in order to make sense. Um, the strike didn't involve a lot of people, not either throughout the university or in the School of Architecture. There were about there were more people, a greater percentage of the School of Architecture participated than the percentage of the students in the university. There were only about 700 students in the university who participated. There were maybe about 30 out of more or less 300 in the School of Architecture who participated. So they, they were in greater numbers. But as I mentioned before, they were almost accidental participants. They wanted to complete their project. But by the time they spent a week kind of discussing the issues, they were a community. And then along came the police in the middle of the night and busted up the insurrection in a very violent way, uh, indiscriminately clubbing not only the students but the faculty and and the reporter, the media, uh, and so the students witnessed that, and that radicalized them, and it radicalized the faculty, and the rest of the university. So what happened after the police bust was a much bigger insurrection than what happened before. <laughs> I mean, the real insurrection was after the police bust, because then people saw, oh, we have a reason to rise up against authority. This authority is bad. Police bust. Many, many people got involved in a very intense way in changing the school. And the the people, the students and staff, and staff included most of the faculty. They were not tenured faculty, were called staff. So the staff and the students organized and were always one step ahead of the dean and really put forth agenda, an agenda that changed two things. One was the governance of the school and the other was the curriculum. The governance of the school was put into the hands of the students and the staff, which was totally illegal. I mean, it broke all of the university rules about how the university was to be governed by the governing faculty, the tenured faculty. And they said, no, we're not going to do it that way. Here are our interim rules. So they established these illegal interim rules that called for an experiment. And the experiment was the curriculum. The curriculum was to you know, get rid of this top-down Beaux-Arts curriculum um, that was students had decided was totally socially irrelevant and to get a, a curriculum that was driven by the students and their interest. Uh, some of those interests had to do with community service and some of them did not. But the, the curriculum became student-driven and there, there were two parts to it, the student-driven part and the other part was the community service part. Architecture was more about the student-driven curriculum, which was called the platform system. 
and planning was more about community engagement. And um, that actually had uh, a beginning prior to the insurrection. It had been introduced by Charles Abrams, who was a civil rights attorney and housing activist and had brought a huge social justice dimension into the planning department. So the students sort of had that background. And when they had an opportunity under this new democratic governance, they, you know, pushed that agenda much further forward. And that was a big part of the experiment. Some of the architects also participated in the community outreach, but it was primarily in planning. How were they able to sustain this this through Abrams? Well, Abrams, um, first he left after the insurrection. He he did a, a lot of negotiation between the Harlem community and the university and achieved some wonderful things, which you can read about in the book. Um, and then he got a, a better position at Harvard and left, and then he died. And that's a whole nother story. <laughs> yes. That's another book. It's, a, it's, it's in the book. You can read the book. At what point does a young... Sharon Sutton enter into the experiment, and what was your role? Well, the, the um, insurrection was in 1968. I was a French horn player then. I was playing right down the street from here, where the, the library, the uh, law library is, that big massive brownstone building was the site of Man of La Mancha. There was a little temporary theater there. And uh, that's where I was working. So, um, but I, I was kind of bored because the Man of La Mancha music is pretty dumb to dream the impossible dream. And so um, I had started going to interior design school. At first I thought that I wanted to study fashion because I made all my clothes from the time I was a child. It started as an economic thing, and then I got interested in making clothes. So I thought, oh, maybe I'll study fashion. But when I got over to Parsons School of Design, I liked the interior designers seem more like musicians. So I decided to go to interior design school, and I just did that for a hobby. And uh, in the meantime, I had seven teachers for a project. And one of my teachers was an architect, Lou Goodman, also lived in this neighborhood. And um, he worked for Romalda, Romaldo Jurgola. So when the insurrection happened, the summer after, uh, people are saying we have to find some black students because part of this problem is that we have to do a better job of recruiting historically marginalized students. Somebody called me on the telephone and said, would you bring your portfolio to Columbia? So I took my Parsons portfolio to Columbia and I was given a scholarship basically on the spot. 
or a, I know I didn't get the scholarship on the spot. I was given admission and uh, quit my job and enrolled in Columbia. How did that influence your life's work? You know, I didn't really realize how it did until I started working on this book, which was a 10-year process. I, I had assumed, because my teaching is all about community-based learning and uh, it, working in uh, underserved communities, I've always, you know, I, I've had maybe about 12 black students and... 41 years, and most of them are well-to-do, or were well-to-do. A few of them were working class. But I've basically been teaching um, white students, a lot of them well-to-do, or not some working class. Um, so I've looked at my job as, well, it's my job to, make, to help these students become aware of how other people live who are unlike themselves, since I didn't have a group, my own community, to teach. Um, and I thought that I developed my teaching method at the University of Michigan, because the University of Michigan had a very strong community service. You know, John Kennedy introduced the Peace Corps at the University of Michigan, and it had a center of community service and a journal. of, And I thought that my whole approach to teaching came from Michigan. But it actually, the seeds were planted in Columbia, that that's where I got the idea that what you do in architecture student school is you go next door and you fix up the place down the street. And I never realized that until I started working on this project. What was the aha moment? Well, the aha moment is, you know, I started writing the book because having an Ivy League education is a huge privilege. And I felt that I had to give back that privilege. And then when I discovered, well, you know, this privilege had some huge disadvantages because the... The work that I've chosen to do, you know, it's a kind of two-edged sword that I was able to do it and get away with doing it and still succeed because I did have an Ivy League education. If I had a Howard education, I wouldn't be a distinguished professor of architecture. I could only break the rules because Columbia, I was empowered by a Columbia degree. On the other hand, you know, maybe if I went to another school, I wouldn't have felt that I had to have this radical approach to architecture that basically had people saying, well, she's not even an architect, she's a social worker, in a very derogatory way. So it was, you know, it cut both ways. And I'm glad at how, at how it all came out. I would, wouldn't have the story be anything else. What role did the experiment play in the recruitment of minority students? Everything. Not, not actually the recruitment in the retention. You know, every discussion we have in this organization about how to somehow fix the diversity and inclusion problem in architecture, 
somebody within five minutes says, oh, it's the pipeline. We have to fix the pipeline. Michelle Obama in her speech at the convention said exactly that. You have to work on the pipeline. That's a bunch of bunk. People are in the pipeline. They drop out of it. 69% of African-American graduates of architecture programs drop out. If we had those 69%, we wouldn't have the extreme diversity and inclusion problem. So it's not the type pipeline, it's the definition of architecture. And in this experiment, the definition of architecture and urban planning and city making was redefined as something that was meaningful to African American, Puerto Rican, Native American, West Indian students that were there. And they did not drop out. They graduated from school. Uh, I, I discovered 59 people of whom 49 graduated. I've since discovered that there were two more that I missed and there are probably others. So there were a huge number of people who were recruited and graduated. And then they became architects. Mm. They didn't drop out. You know, they are practicing today, those 49 people in architecture, in planning, in government, in industry. So it's not a pipeline problem. It's, an archi- it's, a, it's a definition of architecture problem. It's what we say is valued, what gets rewarded that is causing people to say, this is not for me. I'm not going to work this hard for something that's not that meaningful to me and not get paid that much. When you look at the dropout rates that you mentioned earlier, that's 69% now? That's the last figure that I've heard reported. And how do you compare that? The numbers were in the 1960s and 70s. Well, I I don't know the number um, nationally. What I do know is that... um, at that time, the national pass rate was much lower at 23%. And of my group, I think I recall it being 50% the, of the people who graduated as architects became licensed. So this was special. People knew that they had gotten a gift that they had gotten a reward, a a reward. They took advantage of it. um, They didn't have to adapt themselves to a white culture. They could be themselves, and they went on to be successful. I mean, it's like, this is not rocket science. What is the current state of this type of innovation? Has it kept its momentum? It ended exactly three years after it started. It ended before I graduated, although I was neither aware that there was an experiment going on that it began or ended when I was a student. I just knew I was having a lot of fun. But it, um, the, those rules that empowered the students and staff were um, revised three years after they were written. Um, as a result, well, as a result of many things, there were things changing in the society. 
um, people who were marching and trying to, you know, get civil rights to happen realized there was a price. You know, you can't give, you can't insure people. You can't give people health care without somebody paying. And that's the whole dilemma that, you know, you, you have goodwill and you want to make things better. You want to make the environment better. You want to make health care better. But, oh, but then there's a price. And so then the selfishness comes up. And so the selfishness came up. And then people also, the, the uh, you know, people who were demanding justice got tired that it wasn't happening quick enough. And so they became more violent. And people got tired of the violence. So things just fell apart. You know, achieving... There's an African-American scholar now dead, Derek Bell, who said you have to find joy in the struggle because achieving justice is a struggle. You don't just go out and get it. You have to work for it. It's like losing weight, right? You have to struggle. Right? And so people got tired of the struggle. And then there was this whole kind of selfishness that came that, you know, I'm having to pay too much. And the politicians were playing into it and saying, oh, these welfare cheats, you know, they're, they're not working, they're not worthy. All of the kind of white lash things that have gone on throughout the history of the country bubble up. You know, there's a theory that whenever there's black progress, there's white lash, there's backlash on the part of the, the mainstream society to that progress because it means you have to share. And people don't want to share. So basically the experiment came to an end. And um, also the money that was financing it, you know, the same thing happened to it that's happening to monies now. It, it got to be delegated for other things so there was no more money to pay for these scholarships well there was a Ford Foundation grant that paid for uh, the uh, scholarships and work in the community and um, Ford and other foundations Ford was very heavily financing the black power movement and so some conservative Southern congressmen went after the Ford Foundation. And there was a hearing, and the Ford Foundation was taxed and prevented, and all foundations were prevented from engaging in any political activity. And um, when other foundations saw what happened to the Ford Foundation, they said, I'm not touching this. So the money dried up for for um, the financing of educational equity. What was going on within the School of Architecture? Within the School of Architecture. Well, you know, there were some people who never wanted to do it in the first place, um, who drug their feet. Uh, there were people who wanted to do the experiment, 
but didn't invest the energy that you have to invest in student-centered learning is a very, community-engaged learning is a very difficult way to, to teach because once you give somebody else control of your curriculum, you have to do a whole lot of other planning that allows for that freedom. It's twice as hard. And so people didn't who said, oh, yeah, this is cool, this is cool, but then they didn't do their homework on it. So the, the uh, level of student learning decreased, and the school got into problems with the accreditation board. Um, and that, that was sort of the, the final blow was the accreditation report that came back so negatively. Uh, but the school, the school had problems for, for the, throughout the century. It had never had control of its leadership. And this period of experimentation just kind of made everything go wild. Right? It, was, it was both exciting and devastating. So it just came to an end, ground to a halt. And the students who had promoted it had already graduated, which is the problem with student-led insurrections. The students graduate and they get they they get they buy a car and they get an apartment and they need to earn money and they become the authority. <laughs> you need a whole nother group of students who don't have debt. One point in the book you talk about James Stewart Polchik who was elected as the dean in 1972, in time for Richard Nixon's second term. What was his role in reestablishing the status quo after this period of experimentation? So Polshek was the first um, democratically appointed dean. He was the first of the School of Architecture. The university administration had always commandeered the process, selected the worst possible person, I mean, the School of Architecture had absolutely no status. It was a very small school. People didn't, um, it, it was really run as a, as a university outpost. <laughs> and they just had no respect whatsoever. Had the lowest paid faculty. Had the lowest paid faculty of a low paid faculty. Right. As a result of all of, I mean, one thing that happened with the experiment and with the democratic governance is that there w was a group of faculty and students who knew how to get things done. It's kind of what's happening now with Move On, you know, where, you know, people are learning how to organize the resistance. So people organized, they had skills, and they were able to get a, um, a search committee that resulted in this hire and the university for the first time gave the dean authority. He allowed the dean to be on the campus planning um, commission and to have a say and to be able to do work. The, the faculty could do projects. I mean, my first project out of school was Avery Hall because I was working for Kuzminoff and that was a first that a faculty member would be hired for a university project, if you can imagine. And they were hiring hacks, doing these horrible buildings. Um, so 
he came in at a really low point and at a watershed point in which the university either had to close the School of Architecture or change the way it was dealing with the school. And fortunately, the administration made the wise choice of running a, a democratic search. Then when a candidate was identified, of uh, giving that candidate his, you know, his dowry, as we say in in academia, the, the, the gifts you give to an incoming administrator to allow them, him or her, to, um, to realize their mission. So he came in with, um, empowered by the university administration, with a mandate to fix the problems that were ongoing for many years in the school. Um, at the same time, the, the experiment had kind of fizzled, you know, because people were countering it, not, not doing it in an effective way. Um, and the, the idea of democratic governance was not totally lost because the new rules that were written, even though it, it didn't have this outrageous illegal quality to it, they were more democratic than they had been. That there could be student and staff involvement if a f part-time faculty member, I forget exactly the language, if they demonst demonstrate, if part-time faculty members demonstrated a commitment to the school, they could be part of the governing faculty. It wasn't just a kind of black and white that only the tenured faculty can have any say here. So there was improvement um, in as a result of the experiment. But basically, the whole idea of another definition of architecture, that one that was, you know, keeping the minority students engaged in doing work that was relevant to them, went out the window. And it became a theoretical school. So with the changes that he had made, that pretty much put the, an end to this type of thinking. How yeah. does it the end also ends up being the person who should write the forward for your book? You know, the story, any story has two sides. And this story had like ten sides. And I, I really struggled to try to uh, even-handedly represent all of the different perspectives. And Polshek was my litmus test on that. I tried to get a couple of other faculty members who were there at the time to do interviews with me, and they kind of didn't respond. Uh, but he was the one person who, who was willing to engage with me. And I really needed, I needed his affirmation that I had been even-handed because the story is negative and it's also positive. You know, he ended the possibility that there could be a large minority population by virtue of getting rid of, uh, first of all, the undergraduate degree, but in, in addition, the night school, which was a way that um, working class students were attending the school historically and had been a 
praised by the accreditation team. Um, and he also eliminated the um, community outreach programs. So that was the bad part. On the other hand, he's, he's beloved in the African-American community. Um, you know, one of my classmates died about a month ago. And Polshek contacted me. He wanted to be in touch with the family and send his condolences about what a great guy this was. He was recruited by Max Bond. He, I worked for Polshek. I did. Con I had an office, and his office was around the corner from me. I did consulting for. You know, he he wrote a fellowship support letter for one of my classmates. You know, I mean, he's, he's beloved in the African-American community. So he had, he, he didn't have the kind of understanding of structural racism that would have helped him see how he could shepherd that unusual thing that was going on. But as individuals, he then supported people. And he knew it, you know, he said, I think he said in his foreword, I was a white guy from Ohio. <laughs> you know, like, you know, a red state. <laughs> what do I know about this? So I, I asked him long before I, I, I think I didn't even have a publisher when I asked him. And he kept saying, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And finally, and I sent him a copy, and, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. And he didn't read it. And finally, you know, we were getting down to the wire, and I said, you know, I really have to have you do this by August, last August. So I sent, he said, could you send me a copy? So I sent him the 10th copy. And he quickly um, skimmed it and knew that chapter seven was about him. So he said, could you send me chapter seven? <laughs> I said, chapter seven. And he read chapter seven and said, chapter seven passed muster. So he wrote it. He wrote the. You describe a reversal of the societal context that had given rise to insurgency so that a different type of student now attended the university and school. This changed context. What became of the dreams of achieving a democratic society and recruiting minority students who would help their communities? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I talked about it a little bit in relation to myself that, you know, this degree had caused me to be accused of being a social worker rather than an architect. That we did as a group, and this was throughout the interviews, that people f made a commitment to be successful as successful as you should be with a Columbia degree. I mean, we're, we're not people that the school has to be ashamed of. And yet to maintain that commitment, the person I mentioned who, who died about a month ago, that was mentioned a lot in his obituary and his memorial service. His commitment to be successful and successful enough that he could educate his his daughters, his family, um, 
and yet still maintain the commitment to doing the work that didn't always pay um, the kind of income that he might have been able to to have. So people held on to their individual commitments. The thing is, you know, if you look at this structurally, systemically, I think, well, you know, individuals make a commitment to pro bono service, but then what does the, what commitment does the architecture profession make to serve underserved populations beyond a volunteer commitment? Yeah, because you can't you can't run something on volunteerism. You have to have people have to put food on their table. I'm grateful that you included the biographies of the 24 minority alumni, including one anonymous entry who had to endure decades of resistance, societal dysfunction, racism, and barriers, yet they persisted and achieved distinctive careers. Can you share a few of the most impressive triumphs you described in when ivory towers were black? So I picked out four for you of different kind of people. The, the person that I wanted to do this project with was Carl Antony. And um, he, he actually was, um, before the insurrection, he was part of this night school. So he worked as a janitor during the day, and then he went to night school. It took him eight years to go to the School of Architecture. And I actually have some other colleagues around town who, who went to that night school, who were working class people. Um, and so the school was not in the experimental mode when he was there, and he was very angry at the school. And when the insurrection happened, he became a leader in recruiting uh, black students. He, he organized with Max Bond and got money from the dean and traveled around with another student. Um, and so I really thought that he, he would be a very important person to work with me on this project. Uh, he, the, the University of Washington's requirements for conducting social science research scared him off. So he said, I'm not doing this. <laughs> sort of like f f uh, filling out the forms for your registration exam scared anybody that is not really committed to it. So he didn't do it, but he, he was a person I had. I hadn't really known him at school, but I met him over at the Ford Foundation. I had a Ford Foundation grant um, in 2004 that I thought he was responsible for. Turns out he wasn't. But in the time that I was going to the Ford Foundation, I connected up with Carl Anthony, and he was really doing amazing work. He was a, in charge of a unit um, that was a, a global unit that was doing environmental work around the world. He had a portfolio where he was giving grants. And that job was just coming to an end in the time that I met him. Uh, he, he started out to be a regular architect and just couldn't get through it, couldn't get through the exams and 
and, and was basically interested in these bigger issues of the environment and community. So he ended up founding a um, nonprofit organization in San Francisco. He did a lot of work in San Francisco. And then eventually uh, came back to New York and worked at the Ford Foundation. So I think he's he's one of the stellar people. He has um, uh, the, the people who, the organizations that he funded, um, he is doing a whole book series for MIT Press where they are writing about their projects in this um, MIT book series on the environment. So he's, he's one of the people that, that really is a treasure. An, another of my treasures is my good friend Robert King. Um, Robert's sort of like my brother. We were good friends in school. Um, and I'm his sponsor for the fellowship. I was out in Seattle, but I worked with the New York chapter from Seattle to get Robert his fellowship. He's, he started out as an auto mechanic, got involved in architect, and fell in love with historic preservation, basically, and somehow got recruited to Columbia. And... Um, his work, he he does small projects. He does small projects, but what he's really known for is his photography of um, the stone sculptures that are on ordinary buildings, and he wants to call attention to this unrecognized craft in the city that, you know, nobody looks up at these things, these beautiful sculptures that were made between 1850 and 1930 that are, you know, torn down all the time. And he goes around, he has this telephoto lens. It looks like he's standing right next to something that's five feet in the air. So he's another one that um, that is one of my treasures. And then um, just to give a, a one of the planning uh, perspectives. This is a woman, uh, Maybell Bennett Taylor, um, who was in the planning department, and I didn't know her. Um, she um, went to Nigeria and got her beginning planning experience then, which was a thing that a number of the uh, graduates did to overcome discrimination in this country is that they would go and work in the recently liberated African countries uh, to get their experience. And so she worked there for a while. She came back and did a number of jobs in, in Washington, D.C., and wound up at Howard University doing the negotiations between Howard and its surrounding communities. And you would think that Howard, as a historically black college or university, would treat its surrounding African-American community well. But you would be wrong. It treated it as poorly as Columbia treated Harlem. And so Maybell has, has been the person over the years to negotiate a better relationship with that community and to get owner-occupied housing and to stem the disinvestment that was happening because of the land banking that Howard was doing. So she's my third treasure. My last treasure is somebody you all know is 
uh, Roberta Washington, uh, who's very active in the New York architectural uh, community. She went to Columbia just one year. She had a degree already from Howard, and she got a Master of Science degree in um, hospital and health facility design because she wanted to get a specialty that would set her apart. What I really like about Roberta is she epitomizes this thing that you asked me about of, you know, how did people maintain their dreams? Uh, in that she is, um, she has the largest, um, the largest continuously operated female-owned black female-owned architecture firm in the country. And she's managed to do that while at the same time having some pretty clear criteria about the work she will do. She, you know, she wants to do work. She does work that makes a difference in people's lives, that somehow changes things for people who need change. And we have a very uh, symbiotic relationship, although I, I've not been that close to her over the years, in that um, she was the 11th black woman to be registered in the country, and I was the 12th. On the other hand, I was the second black woman to become a fellow, and she was the third. So we're kind of nose to nose. So those are my treasures. Yes. She got away from me once. I was trying to organize an exhibition in East Harlem and couldn't get her because she was so busy. Yes, she's very busy. It, it, I think uh, her oral history took about three different sittings because she'd run out of time and my interviewer would have to call her back and start over again. <laughs> But I was very appreciative that she participated. I was appreciative that everyone participated because it was a bad time. I did these interviews during the Great Recession, and people were run ragged trying to keep their offices open. And so I was, I was very appreciative that people took the time to do this. And also, you may want to tell our audience about yourself and myself well I I'm an academic I started out in practice in in New York while I was working on my PhD at the City University and then when I completed that my advisor really encouraged me to uh, become a full-time academic which is very difficult to do in architecture in New York City, especially if you want to do kind of non-traditional stuff. So I was, I had gotten a PhD in environmental psychology. I wanted to do human behavioral kind of teaching, environment and behavior focus. So um, I, I started on this. I had been teaching at Pratt. I also taught at Columbia. But after I graduated, I t took my first job was in Cincinnati, the University of Cincinnati, where I was the first woman and first black in the architecture school. I stayed there for two years, and then I was recruited to Michigan, where I was the first woman in the architecture school. 
And then I was recruited, I, no, I invited myself to the University of Washington. I stayed 12 and a half years at Michigan. And Michigan is where I was, became the first black woman to be promoted to full professor of architecture. And, and I have to give credit to Michigan for that because the reason that Michigan, um, the, the um, affirmative action cases were brought against Michigan is the extraordinary success it was having in diversifying the university. It had a very strong diversity program and that benefited me a great deal and that made it possible for, you know, there was a whole awareness that if we are going to have a diverse university, we have to have a, a, a different con a definition of the disciplines. And so they accepted as viable the work I was doing as work in architecture. Not so much the architecture school, but the university validated the kind of work that I was doing and you know, supported me in, in an incredible way. But then I got tired of living in Ann Arbor where there weren't too many urban projects. So I invited myself to the University of Washington where I became the first black person. I stayed there 16 and a half years as the entire faculty was changed because one group was retiring, another group was being hired. And I left as the only black faculty member. There are no black faculty members. I used to say, you know, I'm gonna stay in this job until you replace me. But then I realized I would be there until I died. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't worth it, so I left. So that, that's kind of my academic path. I do have this other um, strain in my career, which is probably why I like Robert King's um, architectural photography, is that I do uh, graphic arts. Um, I started doing that at Columbia, started doing printmaking, and I've studied printmaking all over the world. And, Italy and in Spain and in Mexico and New York um, and occasionally exhibit my stuff, market it, hang it up in my house. Uh, and, oh, and by the way, this is not my first book. I would not have gotten tenure if this were my first book. It's my fifth book, my fifth book, and I, I've done a lot of publishing of book chapters and articles. So. Basically, what I do is write. <laughs> Fortunately, the mission of societal equality and innovation continues to persist. Unfortunately, the parameters have become more frightening, not only for ethnic minorities, for all of society. After several years of writing and exposing audiences to this very complex subject, what would you wish for our listeners and those who read When Ivory Towers Were Black to come away with? What can they do with the collective wisdom of the alumni you gave a voice to that will benefit young persons from a wide range of backgrounds? Yeah. I think there, well, first of all, what you're saying about the problem being so much more overwhelming. I mean, the income inequality and what's happening with the environment, um, the uh, inability of, you know, groups of people 
to see the other person's point of view. Uh, they're all problems that are just magnified uh, beyond anything that existed in an earlier era. So I think the two lessons that are the big takeaways is one, to put your faith in the power of young people to bring about change. Young people have chutzpah. They haven't been, they haven't been trained into the status quo, into the rules of society. They question that. I, I'm worried that they that they may lose that because education has been so downgraded. Um, in that the liberal arts, which is where you learn to question things, has been wiped out in favor of high-paying jobs. You know, education is becoming more job training than it is education. On the other hand, you have things like the Black Lives Matter, uh, where people are educating themselves in the street. So I still have great faith in the chutzpah of young people to bring about change. And... Um, that's going to be my next book. Um, the other lesson is don't be duped by the idea that racism isn't overwhelming, isn't all-powerful. It's powerful. And it's embedded in this country in a very insidious way. I mean... There were two instances in the book that really struck me the depth of racism, of reading through correspondence in the archives and seeing what, you know, these administrators were doing to eliminate the urban agenda in Harlem, you know, the whole scheming to get rid of it the whole scheming to get rid of, to not hire a professor who was a social justice advocate. Um, and this was not even a black person. This was just somebody who was an, a, an advocate for the underdog. So the power of racism is strong. And I think that people, you know, they want to, not face up to that. And you have to face up to it. Because if you don't, you can't solve it. If you, if you don't talk about it, you can't solve it. You know, maybe I'm feeling this more because I'm coming from Seattle, where race is a dirty word. And if you start talking about something to do with race, people start looking at their shoes and changing. Oh, it's a nice day today, isn't it? Uh, so... And and you you can't sweep these things under the table. So those are the two lessons: is the power of young people and the power of racism, and the two opposite things of, you know, what do you have to to go up against, um, to to be able to bring about change. Yeah, they do the same thing in San Francisco. <laughs> oh really? Yes. Yeah. Well, I can imagine it's maybe a a left coast kind of. Well, New York is special because, and that's why I came back here, is it really feels 
at home because the difference is so much out on the street and in the open and people sort of confront difference and live with difference, cheek and jowl. And I wanted to have that. You had your first book talk about when Ivory Towers were black at the Center for Architecture in New York City. And then you were the featured speaker at the AA Awards luncheon in April. What has been the response and what possibilities are coming forth for you? Well, th the response has been great. You know, as I told you, this is my fifth book. And I get uh, royalty statements that say, your royalties are so small, we, we, won't, we won't send them to you till next year when it's worth putting the postage stamp on them. That, you know, I've never written anything that, that, was, that has been read. <laughs> I've done a lot of writing, but it's not been read. Um, so the response here has been really terrific. I've had um, three full-length articles that have come out, one uh, in Metropolis, one in the L.A. Times, which is the total non-architectural one, and one in um, City Lab, which is connected to MIT. And they, they're all three very insightful and really connecting the book to the current situation. So that has been very gratifying to me. Uh, I, I also have, um, my goal is to spend next year doing public lectures at various universities that are co-sponsored between a College of Architecture and Urban Planning and an AIA chapter and some other unit on campus that deals with diversity, whether it's the Af African American Studies program or a diversity and inclusion office to have a kind of broad, Fordham has, has advertised this as a general interest book. I didn't sit down to write it as a general interest book, but as it got edited, it, it, it turned into that. And so I want to do these lectures that are oriented to a broad audience. And I've already booked two for September, one at uh, the University of Southern California and another one at the University of Michigan. And then in October, I'll be going to the University of New Mexico. And, and all three of those, there's a, a reason. The University of New Mexico has its first, has what I think is the first African-American dean of a college of architecture and urban planning in the country of a research university. Max Bond was the dean at City College, but the University of Southern California is a major research university with a major college of architecture, and it's just hired an African-American dean. Michigan, I mentioned before, had this aggressive diversity program that was so aggressive that the, the conservative right said, that's the school we're going to go after for a case to eliminate affirmative action. So they have a whole history. And then the University of New Mexico was not a school that was on my radar. I knew a, a woman who's working on the faculty there. But once I looked it up, I thought, oh, this school has really, apart from Michigan, it has a really strong 
um, diversity and inclusion initiative. So they're schools that are, are open to the message. Um, I guess it's a matter of whether I want to preach to the choir or find new choirs. And I think I'll start out preaching to the choir. And, and I have a couple of other, um, th- other um, conversations that are not confirmed, but I expect to be doing a number of lectures. And then I'm going to start working on my sixth book, which is a sequel to this, which is about this pipeline thing that I've become obsessed with that I have um, a lot of data from the Ford Foundation study that I did of youth programs in America. And there's there are, of teenagers, um, pretty the majority 16 to 27, kind of young, young people, who are doing amazing advocacy work in their communities that in the Columbia definition of architecture and urban planning, they could be our pipeline. It exists. These kids are working in their community. They have all sorts of skills. They're cleaning up rivers. They're getting new school buildings built. They're, you know, they're building houses. They work for Habitat for Humanity. They're doing amazing stuff. That's our pipeline. We don't have to create it. We don't have to go into the elementary school and say, here's what architecture is. Wouldn't you like to be an architect? These kids are doing the other kind of architecture that we were doing at Columbia. So it's going to be my sequel book. And while I'm you know, promoting this book, I want to be writing another one. With that, I want to thank you for taking on a very complex task of memorizing the insurgency into a vivid book and bringing light to so many dedicated professionals who are inspirations for all of us. Their lifetime dedication from pursuing social justice as students, dedication to community development, achieving leadership roles in architecture and planning provides a much needed role models and a hopeful path for anyone who engages when ivory towers are black to move forward. Well, thank you for doing this podcast. It's my distinct pleasure. I was very excited to meet you. As always, I'm deeply grateful to the Oculus Board Advisory Committee Executive Director Ben Prosky, Oculus Editor Alan Brake, Camilla Shalston, Brett Hoff, Jacob Freedy, James Falerino, Philip Stevens, who is our audio technician today, and the audiovisual crew for their dedicated efforts to make this all possible. Please read the review of When Ivory Towers Are Black, a story about race in America's cities and universities on the Eoculus website at www.aiany.org. The Oculus podcast series is brought to you by the Oculus Board Advisory Committee of the American Institute of Architecture's New York City chapter. Take good care, Sharon. Thank you.